teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of not only knowing your gospel, not only the privilege of you giving us faith to believe, but also, Lord, the privilege to proclaim it. Lord, I do thank you for my brother David. I thank you for the heart you've given him for the lost. And just thank you for, Lord, his leadership and, and willingness and boldness that you gave him, Lord, to, to go and proclaim. I pray you would bless him, Lord, give him direction and, and lead him as he and his wife, Nicole, go. Lord, I pray, too, for just this opportunity we have as a church with the Children's Hunger Fund, that, Lord, you would um, raise us all up, Father, to take these boxes and fill them, and, and Lord, even uh, later to be part of uh, distributing them. Lord, may we run out of boxes, God. May you um, just use us, Lord, to be a light um, to those around us. pray, too, for uh, those that were affected by the Utah mission trip and the many seeds that were planted, Lord, Father, you would cause those seeds to sprout. I pray for Casey and Lindsay, for Liberty Bible Church, that you would use them, Lord, in their community and in a very difficult place. God, may you bless and encourage them, and and Lord, use them to proclaim the good news of your Son. I pray, Lord, now as we look to your Word, that he would be lifted up, that your Son would be magnified, that we would better understand and know him through what you have given us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as many of you know, we have a tradition whenever somebody has a child, we have a rose on the piano and share with you a little bit of information about them. And what's typically the first thing that we let you know about this new baby or adoption? Their name, right? Their name. Yeah, we tell you dimensions and all that stuff. But the first thing is the name, right? Names are important. Names are an important aspect of our culture. And there are those times, though, where a person's name... And their vocation or their circumstances just don't match up. Uh, For example, I uh, saw uh, this name on a tombstone when I was vacationing out in the northeast. Uh, We were in a cemetery looking along. We found this name on one of the tombstones there. (laughs) Made me wonder if he worked there before. uh... Another tombstone I saw was a a retired U.S. Army colonel with this name. Yeah, I know. That's pretty unfortunate. Um, I saw this one on the poster of a man who was running for office. Yeah, these are real names, by the way. They're not made up. I looked up and verified them. Uh, Yes, I I don't know how he did, but uh, here's a guy who was listed as a meat manager in a local supermarket. (laughs) Or this one is a surgeon from up north. Yeah, I, I don't think I'd want him working on me. Here's a guy who was promoted to chief medical officer at Newhall Memorial. Now, you know, it's interesting here. At least he wasn't listed under experimental medicine. Well, uh, there's a friend of mine. He's had a dentist uh, in the valley since he was a kid. This is his name. He's still practicing, by the way, if you want to check him out. He's in Chatsworth. Uh, Here's another dentist. Again, this is not made up. This is real. I verified it. 
San Francisco, if you're in the area, look him up. I mean, what a marketing strategy. <laughs> but my favorite is a British couple. Let me tell you about them for a second. There was a, a woman I read about her. Oh, don't show yet. Don't show yet. Oh, it broke it. Oh, okay. Pretend you didn't see that. I got to set it up. There was a, a woman, her name, main name was Susan Frame, and she married a man named Robert Mee, and they both go by the shortened form of their first name. So we have a lawyer named Sue Mee and a banker named Rob Mee. <laughs> yes, these are rather unfortunate names, and so is the case for actually the name of the portion of Scripture we're going to look to next for the next several months. We're going to be studying the part of the Old Testament, the last 12 books, which are commonly known as the Minor Prophets. Now, the name Minor Prophets, uh, I think, is regrettable. Uh, it seems to imply these books are less important, less significant, that they're minor, as opposed to the rest of Scripture. And we probably have Augustine to thank for this. He, he is the first one uh, that we could find who uh, had mentioned the Minor Prophets versus the Major Prophets in his uh, book, The City of God, written in the early 5th century. And I'm sure when Augustine noted that, he didn't intend to communicate that these books were less important. All he was doing was trying to distinguish the fact that these are smaller books. They're, less lower, they're smaller in length compared to the other books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. In fact, Isaiah alone is 25% longer and larger than all of the 12 prophets combined. But the name Minor Prophets has stuck. That's prompted uh, the great Hebrew scholar Charles Feinberg to... Um, Lament this. One of the literary ineptitudes of the centuries is the popular name given to the last 12 books of the Old Testament, namely the Minor Prophets. The impression often gained is that these books are of minor importance. A better designation for them is that which the rabbis employ, that is, the Twelve. And I agree, I think that title better befits them, the Twelve. I mean, that, that sounds more biblical, doesn't it? There's 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel, the Twelve Prophets. So we're going to stick with that title for them going through the series. Now, because these 12 books were shorter, in fact, one of them is only 21 verses, uh, they were copied together as one book on one scroll, and they were kept together in that way. And so, uh, just as Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, noted, they were considered really one unit. They were written by 12 different men, 12 different prophets over a period of time, but they were collected together and considered really one book, the 12 they were referred to that way. Now, our day, the 12 have received uh, little attention. I mean, Jonah gets some press, right, for that whole fish incident that took place. There's Hosea. Some, of, some people are familiar with him because of the fact that God had told him to marry a harlot. And we always hear about the joke about the Italian prophet, right, Malachi, which I promise I will not tell that joke when we get there. But if you were to ask somebody, who is Obadiah? Or uh, who is Amos? Or if you were to ask them, what, what did Nahum or Habakkuk talk about? You would probably get a blank stare. Twelve just doesn't get much notice, especially in the church. In fact, I heard one pastor as he opened up his series on uh, the Twelve and the Minor Prophets. He said, please turn to the clean pages in your Bible. But my hope is that as we go through these books together, that not only will we gain a greater understanding, not only will we get some usage out of those clean pages in our Bible, but most especially that we would get a greater appreciation for these 12. And so this morning, I want to introduce you to the 12. I'm going to introduce you to them by answering three questions. One is, what are the prophets? 
You need to understand, what, what was a prophet, especially an Old Testament prophet? Second question is, who are the twelve? We'll look at them more closely. And then finally the question, why study them? Why study them? What is so important about uh, reading and learning and studying and understanding these prophets that are tucked away at the end of our Old Testament? So let's first let's uh, look at the question, what are the prophets? What is their role? And to do that, we need to uh, do a little Old Testament 101 here today. And that, you know, the Old Testament that we have today in our English translations is a little bit different than it was in the time of Christ. The same books are there, but the arrangement and the order of them was different. Uh, let me, if you could show the next slide to me. I'm not going to go through everything here, but I just want to give you a little bit of an idea of the Hebrew Bible, the, the Old Testament that uh, existed in Jesus' day, how it was structured, how it was organized. And basically it was organized in three sections. What were they called, John David? All right, he pronounced them wonderfully. He's our Hebrew scholar. You know, we had a resident Hebrew scholar here, by the way. They are known as the, the Tanakh, which is an acronym for the three sections of them. Um, by the way, I'll let the Dr. Barrick know. You can pass through the next uh, test there for your d- degree. But the Torah, right? What is the Torah? Anyone know what that means? It's the law, right? It's a Hebrew word for the law. It refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, which Moses wrote, the man who God used to bring the law to the people of Israel, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They are the same first five books we have in our English translation. Second section is called the Nevi'im, which is Hebrew for the prophets. And the prophets contained uh, what are known as the former early prophets from Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, aren't those like historical books? Why, why are they called the prophets? Well, they existed in the time period of the prophets. Second part of the Nevi'im is known as the latter prophets. And those are the ones we classically uh, have seen Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. The third section of the Hebrew Bible is called the Ketuvim, which means the writings. It's here where we have the Psalms, the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and also the books that were written during and after the exile. Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles. It's important to note, and I bring this up, there's one passage where Jesus is describing, uh, he describes the Bible to his disciples and it's interesting to listen how he describes it. Luke 24, 24, or 44, he says this. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So here Jesus is referencing those three sections, major sections of the Hebrew Bible, the, the Torah, the law of Moses, the prophets, and then he says the Psalms, which... That's the largest book in the Ketuvim by far. And so many just refer to the Ketuvim or the writings as the Psalms. But he was talking about each of these three sections. Notice how he mentions all three of them. And in the Nevi'im, we see the twelve tucked away there in the part of the latter prophets. And as I mentioned earlier, they were shorter in length. And so they were copied down on one scroll together. You had Isaiah on a scroll, Jeremiah on a scroll, Ezekiel, and then the twelve. And before we talk specifically about them, I, I want us to discuss a little bit and, and talk about this term prophet. What, what is meant by a prophet? Some of you, when you think of an Old Testament prophet, maybe a, a picture of a, a wild-haired, crazy man who was uh, in the desert saying and doing crazy and want, weird things comes to mind. Now, sometimes there are instances of a prophet going to certain extremes, but that doesn't fully describe or capture their role. There's uh, four words the Old Testament, that are used when referring to a prophet. 
A handful of times is the phrase Isha Elohim, or man of God, was used. Moses was described as a man of God, Samuel, Elisha. It just simply means they're God's man. They were chosen and sent by God to deliver a message. Two others uh, which occur for the word prophet occur about 30 times together in the Old Testament are Roet and Koze. It simply means to see, to perceive, has the idea of understanding. And so if you look in your Old Testament, you see the word seer. That's where that word comes from. It's this idea of gaining insight from God and then proclaiming it. In fact, with um, Saul, when he was looking, when he first met Samuel, he was looking for the donkeys and he was going around asking, where, where is Samuel, the seer? So he understood Samuel to be one who would speak for God. Samuel described the fact how the seer and the, the prophet were one and the same. Seer was kind of an older term that was used for prophets. He said in 1 Samuel 9, 11, Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come, let us go to the seer. For he was called a prophet, now was formerly called a seer. And that fourth term, prophet, or navi, is by far the most common word used for a prophet in the Old Testament. Some 600 times it occurs There's some question as to where it originally came from, what it originally meant, but it came to mean, when used of a prophet, one who speaks on behalf of another, and particularly a prophet of God, is one who speaks for God. God told the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.7, Everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, Jeremiah said, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. That clearly describes the prophet's role. He was to speak the words God gave him. Turn to Deuteronomy 18 for a minute. We'll see a a similar description given by Moses. As he is foretelling of a special prophet to come, within that he also describes a prophet's role and responsibility. Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'll be beginning in verse 15. Peter referred to this passage in Acts 3. This here, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, like me, from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore. I will die. Verse 17, The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And Moses is speaking here of Mount Sinai when they received the law, and God spoke from the mountain, delivered the ten words, the ten commandments directly to the people of Israel. And as God was speaking, the mountain shook and there was fire and, and, and wind and all that. And the people said, okay, okay, we don't want to hear directly from God anymore. He's too scary. So Moses, you go and, and let him talk to you. And then you come tell us what he said, okay? And thus the office of prophet was born. And God said, I will do that. And so he first used Moses to be a prophet to speak for God. And then those that came after him. You see that this idea of, the, uh, of a prophet being having the words of God in his mouth and then proclaiming him often in the, in the prophets. And we'll see it in the 12, this phrase, thus says the Lord or thus saith the Lord. They understood. God's given me these words and now he's speaking. Even though you hear a human voice, it is God who is proclaiming to you. 
was their job to speak the words that God directed them to speak. And then in verse 20 here in Deuteronomy 18, we see Moses going on to give the test of a true prophet, one whom God had truly sent. He says in verse 20, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, well, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. Again, he's saying here the prophet's job, the Navi's job was to speak, was to proclaim what God said. The man of God, the seer, if he said something that didn't come to pass, if he was foretelling a future event or circumstance and it didn't come true, then God's saying, he's not my prophet. He's not speaking on my behalf. We see many, many examples of that. Jeremiah, there was a prophet who was saying, that, you know, we're going to win this battle to win this victory. God's with us. And Jeremiah said, no way, no way. Don't listen to this guy. He's not speaking for God. I hear so many in the church today claiming to be modern-day prophets, claiming to be spokespersons for God, giving a word from the Lord, or, or spouting off some prediction, or telling people what God has presumably told them. And then when many of those claims don't come to pass, they, they say, well, I got some of it correct. I got most of it right. But see, if somebody says they are God's prophet, in like kind to the Old Testament prophets, to the New Testament prophets, then everything they say should happen, right? Right? Listen, if if any of it's wrong, it's not God. God doesn't have a 75% accuracy rate, or 90%, or even 99.99%. A true prophet of God is 100% accurate. Now today, there, there are no prophets like these Old Testament or New Testament prophets, as we studied in Ephesians 2, verse 19, when the Scriptures were closed, when all the New Testament books were written, and we have them now, that there was no further need for the apostles or prophets. Because now we have all that God has wanted us to understand. We've had all that God has said for us to know right here. Right here. And so now it is the job of teachers, of elders, pastors, shepherds, those who teach the Word of God, to study it diligently, to understand it, to practice it, and then to teach it. There's no new stuff God is needing to give. He's given us all we need here. We'll talk about that in a minute. As we consider the function of the Old Testament prophet, one who spoke for God, one who was given a message that he was called to proclaim, we need to understand something. Because some people get confused between a prophet and a priest. Do they, do they overlap? Do they have a similar roles? Or What was their job? Are they the same? Are they different? Well, priests were identified by birth. Prophets were chosen by calling. Priests focused on teaching the law, while prophets urged obedience to the law. Essentially, the difference between a priest and a prophet is this. A priest spoke on behalf of the people to God, while a prophet spoke on behalf of God to the people. That's the key difference. They're two distinct offices. But you know, in our Lord Jesus Christ, He fills them both. Simultaneously, he is both God's prophet and our priest. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, Peter said Moses was speaking of Christ as the prophet that God would raise up, the one that would speak the words God gave him. In fact, Jesus said that in John 12, 49. I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say 
and what to speak. So Jesus speaks on behalf of God to the people, but also he speaks on behalf of us to God. In fact, he's the perfect mediator. He is the exalted, far superior high priest. Hebrews 10.11 said of Jesus, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice himself for all sins, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. See, Jesus' death, his death on the cross was the perfect sacrifice, the only sufficient payment that can erase sins. Jesus himself is the only person that can be our true high priest, the only one who can go before the throne of God because of the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. Because no human priest could do that. No human priest can stand before God on your behalf. No human priest, even if he died for you, would not be sufficient to be able to stand before God because he is a sinner just as you and I are. But Jesus never sinned. Because of his sacrifice, he can go to the Father as your priest and secure your forgiveness for eternity. Again, no human priest can do that. No human mediator can pay for your sin. There's nobody can speak for God on your behalf. You can't go to anybody and they'll say, oh, you are forgiven. I, through the authority vested in me, you are forgiven. No one has the authority to do that. Only Jesus Christ can do that. He is our great high priest. And if he is not your priest, then go to him now. His office is always open. And go to him. Confess your sins. Say, well, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I, I deserve punishment of hell for eternity. But I thank you that you made a way for my sins to be forgiven. Would you go before the Father and, and forgive me for my sins so that I may be made holy and blameless only because of your death on the cross for me. And Jesus will gladly fill that role of high priest for you. Go before the Father. Well, let's go back to the role of the prophet. Again, the prophet was to speak for God. And that speaking that he did, was uh, uh, you can describe it in two ways. There was a foretelling and a forthtelling. By forthtelling, I simply mean to tell forth, <laughs> to proclaim, to speak. Foretelling has the idea of predicting a future event, telling something that was to take place in the future. And prophets did both of these things. Often you will see in the prophetic books, there will be a, a prophecy, a foretelling that the prophet does either something in the near future or even some things that did not occur in their lifetime. And that foretelling was for the purpose, one, to validate their foretelling, just as Jesus performed miracles and signs so that we would know he was from God. And also, too, that foretelling would serve as a motivation, knowing what was to happen in the future would either help me turn from my sins now or have hope and encouragement in what God is going to do. Prophet's foretelling essentially was for the purpose of his foretelling. And that message that the prophet would often give, and we'll see it over and over as we go through the 12, is that the people needed to turn from their sinful ways and be faithful to God. Second Kings seventeen thirteen says, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all the prophets and every seer. And there we see both words used. Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. Through my servants, the prophets. Okay, so we've talked about 
prophet in general, what his role, responsibility, and function is. Let's look at the 12 specifically. What do we know about them? Where did they live? When did they live? Who did they prophesy to? What was the focus of their message? Were they all just saying the same thing at different times? What was the context in which they lived? To answer these questions, we have to do a little bit more Old Testament 101. We need to understand where do these guys, don't show yet, where do these guys fit? Technical difficulties. It's my fault. I think I lost the remote clicker, so this is God's way of getting me back. Okay, so I want us to, I'll show that in a minute. See, that's a teaser actually. What was it? I didn't see it. What did he have up there? What is it? Um, if you're like me, you know, when you think about the Old Testament, it's just this mass of people, events. I mean, it covers thousands of years, different situations, and it's easy to get lost. I get confused. I have trouble remembering when I'm reading a book. on Where am I again? Especially when you get to the prophets, because they're all stuck at the end, even though stuff they did happened earlier in the time of the earlier books. And so it's very confusing. It makes it difficult to know at times, especially getting a a fixed point, a reference point when you're reading them. So I want to give you a practical tool. I've shown this before uh, several times, but I I want to give you this tool because I think it is very helpful. It it was what helped me tremendously in getting a fix over the timeline of the whole Old Testament. And to use this tool, you only have to remember six names, six names, and six numbers, six round numbers. I mean, how many of you know who Adam is? Okay, Sharon knows who Adam is. Ed, okay, great. That's going to be a little bit more work than I thought. Um, all right, come on. Who knows who Adam is? The first dude. We all know who Adam is. How about Abraham? Anyone from Abraham? Moses. Yeah, we all know about Moses. Uh, David? Yes, we know David. Daniel, right? Jesus, right? We... Six names. You know those six names already. You just have to remember them and remember these six numbers. 4,000, 2,000, 1,500, 1,500, and zero. Now you can show the, the timeline. Okay? Just remember, Adam, 4,000 B.C. That's about when he was around. Abraham, around 2,000. Moses, 1,500. David, 1,000. Daniel, 500. And Jesus, around the turn of zero. All right? If you can remember those six names and those... Uh, six numbers, you basically have the general timeline of, the ent- of all history, at least from Jesus and before, is those six names of six numbers. So how might this work? If you're reading Exodus or Leviticus, who's, who's talked about there? Of these six names, who's in there? In Exodus or Leviticus? We have Moses, right? People of Israel coming out of Egypt. So about what year did this take place? You're roughly around 1500 B.C., right? Again, this is ballpark. If you want to know exactly, they were in the wilderness in 1446, I think, right? Hebrew scholar is nodding, so I'm correct on that number. But who can remember 1446? I have difficulty with it. It's written down here. That's why I know it. But 1500, yeah, I can remember that. Moses around 1500. Okay, let's say you're reading about Solomon, who was a king, right? You're in 1 Kings. About what are we talking about time-wise now? Around 1,000, right? He was near King David. Technically, he's David's son. But again, we're around 1,000 B.C. Okay, you're reading Isaiah. Okay, remember, he is a prophet. He's speaking to the kings. We're in the time of the kings uh, from David and on. So where is Isaiah about? Very good. Between David and Daniel, somewhere in there. Now, we don't need to know the exact year, but we got a rough idea, right? Or if you think about Samson, he was in the time of the judges. Well, a lot of us know the stories of Samson. When was he? 
were judges before or after the kings came? Before the kings, right? Because the book of Kings is after when you're reading. So that means when? When were the judges around about? Between Moses and David. All right? You see how that works? So if you can get these six names and numbers down, you at least have a good starting point and frame of reference in looking at the rest of the Old Testament. We think about uh, the Jews in the 70-year captivity in Babylon. That was around the time of Daniel. Daniel was one of those who was in captivity. So the captivity in Babylon was around 500. That was the end of the time period of the kings. So if I'm dealing with the kings, between what time periods am I talking about here? If I'm in a... Between David and Daniel, right? 1,000 to 500. Okay, so that just gives you a, a rough idea. Hopefully, this will be a helpful tool. I'll put this on the website so you can have that uh, as a reference point. Now, talking about the prophets, if we can go to the next slide. This one's a little more busy. I apologize for it, but I, I, I want to give you at least again a, a rough idea. I'm not going to go through everything here, but um, we talk about the prophets. We have to start with Moses. He was the prophet par excellence. Deuteronomy 34.10 declares that since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So Moses was the spokesperson for God for all through the wilderness. And then after him came Joshua. And after him, a little bit later, came Samuel. In fact, Samuel was the, the last prophet during the time of the judges and around the transition to the monarchy, to when Israel began having kings. And it's interesting about Samuel is he founded a, a school of the prophets. Uh, sometimes as you're reading through the, um, uh, through the book of Kings or Chronicles or even in the prophets, you'll see this term sons of the prophets. Anyone remember that? That probably uh, it could be the school that Samuel actually began and continued in the times of Elisha and Elijah. In fact, one of our 12 is going to talk about the fact that I was, I'm not a prophet, neither am I son of a prophet. I didn't go to that seminary. God just plucked me out and gave me a message I need to talk to you about. It's Amos, by the way, who did that. There were many prophets during the time of the monarchy. Many, many of them. The two most popular ones you've got on your chart here, around 900, Elijah and Elisha. Those are the two most well-known. They prophesied in the early years of the monarchy. And then came many other prophets after them, known as the writing prophets. Because these are the prophets that we actually have writings from. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. They not only prophesied to the kings, to the religious leaders, to the people, but they also recorded, Holy Spirit moved them to record the words that they gave. And so we have them with us, the writing prophets, who are also known as the latter prophets, as I mentioned earlier. And note, all of them are after Elijah and Isaiah. See, Isaiah, or Elijah and Elisha, Elisha, excuse me. You can see the major ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then the twelve. And if you look more closely at the twelve, there's three different groups. There's the first group of six, second group of three, and the third group of three. Those roughly follow how we have them in our English Bibles. The first group of six is the same as in our English Bibles. The order's a little bit different. Then we have the next group of three, and then the last group of three. And those groups are given in chronological order. In fact, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi came after the exile. Those prophets are after the time period of the kings, and God used them to speak to the people after they had come out of captivity and into back into Jerusalem. Again, I know there's a lot of detail on this slide. Those of you that are not history-oriented, you know, I'm sorry. But, you know, this is important. This is important. I want to give you a reference point for the who these guys are. And as you can see, they're spread out over time. They weren't all clumped into one time period. 
They are in the time period of the kings, and they're spread out over a course of a span of 400 years, all the way from uh, just after Elijah and Elisha to after the exile. One thing we see about them is not only did they not prophesy at the same time, they didn't prophesy to the same people. Seven of these 12 prophesied to the southern tribe of Judah. Two of them, Hosea and Amos, prophesied to the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And then three of them actually prophesied regarding nations outside of Israel. God even had sent and raised up prophets to proclaim his word to those who were not in Israel. We had Obadiah, who had a prophecy regarding the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Also, too, we have Jonah. You remember who he was sent to go preach to? The Ninevites, right? The Ninevites, the Assyrians. And then Nahum, about 100 years later, comes along, and he also was raised up to proclaim a message for the Ninevites. So we have those three guys who were prophets uh, to nations outside of Israel. These 12 guys, these 12 prophets had different backgrounds, unique circumstances. Most of us know about Jonah, right? We know about his famous attempt to flee from prophesying and preaching to the Assyrians. And that led to one of the most unique three-day camping experiences in history, inside the belly of a fish. Hosea, he was given the unusual and unsettling command to marry a harlot. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Amos, he was living the life of a simple shepherd, out watching sheep when God plucked him up and said, all right, I want you to, I want to give you a message to send to the people of Israel. Hosea and Amos, they both spoke to the northern tribes of Israel just before they were taken captive away by the Assyrians. Habakkuk and Zephaniah, they spoke just before the people of Judah, the southern tribe, was taken into captivity into Babylon. As I mentioned earlier, Haggai and Zechariah spoke after that 70-year captivity when they were back in Jerusalem rebuilding the temple. Some of the 12 had a very short ministry, such as Haggai, who was approximately several months. Some had a very long ministry, such as Hosea, which spanned some 60-plus years. Some of the 12 wrote a lot. Hosea and Zechariah recorded about 200 verses. Others wrote relatively little. Haggai only has 38 verses, Obadiah 21. Shortest book in the Old Testament. Malachi, he has the distinction of being the last prophet of God, the last person to speak for God all the way from when he lived to John the Baptist, about 400 years of silence. So we can see here there's quite a variation among these prophets. But when all is said and done, we really don't know a lot about him. In fact, Obadiah, we only know his name. That's it. Because again, the focus wasn't these prophets Focus was on God and his message that he wanted to deliver. Now, at this point, some of you may be asking, why are we doing this? Well, we got these charts up here and, and, you know, is this a history class? What are we doing? Why are we talking about these things? Why is it so important to to know this stuff? Why do I need to know it? Is there going to be a a quiz on the minor prophets when I get to the pearly gate that I'm going to have to pass before I get in? There isn't, by the way, at least not, not that I know of. But if there is, you're going to be wanting to stand behind John David. But sorry, it's your day, man. I'm picking on you. <laughs> you know, why? I mean, you know, these guys lived such a long time ago, 2,500 plus years in a faraway land that's foreign to us here today. What, what does anything that God said then to them have to do with us? I mean, we're the church, right? Shouldn't our focus be the New Testament? Yes, this stuff was important at one time, especially for Israel. But what benefit is it for us today? 
Wouldn't we get more out of going to another New Testament book? And besides that, when you read these guys, it's confusing. You read, what's going on here? What? I don't understand. What is this picture? I, this is confusing. Well, if, if they do confuse you, you're in good company. Martin Luther said this, The prophets have a strange way of talking. Like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see where they're getting at. So if Martin Luther was even confused, we shouldn't feel so bad. But you know, in the end, why we should study the Twelve really is addressing a more fundamental question. Why study the Old Testament at all? What is it in the Old Testament that would be a benefit to the New Testament believer? I mean, many people do wonder about that, if they should invest any time reading, studying, understanding the Old Testament, because they're seen as two distinct books. In fact, one of them is called Old. You know, does that mean it's obsolete now? It's not necessary anymore? It's, it's something from the past? What do I need to, to understand it for? Brothers and sisters, the Bible is one complete book. It's God's revelation to us. In fact, the Old Testament is three quarters of your Bible was written before Jesus came. 225 plus quotations. There are 225 plus quotations of the Old Testament in the New. In fact, 10% of the New Testament text contains a quote or an allusion to the Old Testament. The 12, in fact, there are over 25 quotes of the 12 in the New Testament. And I I saw something interesting, a little study somebody did on on the 12 and the number of quotes. If you take the number of verses that that are contained within the 12 and compare those to the number of verses in the rest of the Old Testament, uh, the other books in the Old Testament, actually the 12 are quoted more frequently than any other book, proportionately speaking. The New Testament authors saw many links to the Old Testament. In fact, Augustine said, the New Testament is in the old concealed The Old Testament is in the New Revealed. Or Thomas Watson said, The two testaments are the two lips by which God has spoken to us. That's a great picture. Because if someone's talking to you and they're holding one lip down, it's kind of hard to get what they're saying. You need both lips. All right. First service liked that one better, eh? (laughs) Turn to 2 Timothy 3 for a minute. I looked at this passage uh, several years ago. We talked about it, and we, we were addressing the question of why study the Old Testament. I want to go back there and just briefly summarize some of the key points from that. At the end of chapter 3, the verses right before the, Paul's famous charge to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1 when he said, Preach the word in season and out of season. Well, right before that, Paul first reminds Timothy of the importance of that word, of the need for it, of Timothy's need to understand it, to rely upon it, and to know it. If you look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, Paul says there to Timothy, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, it's important here that we understand first what Paul meant by Scripture. What was he referring to in verse 16? It refers to God's Word, to all of it, to every word that he has by the power of the Holy Spirit moved men to write. 
But think about this. Remember, when Paul wrote 2 Timothy, how much of the New Testament was completed? It wasn't all finished. In fact, uh, the New Testament had only been started to be written about 20 years before Paul wrote this letter. There were still many other books and letters that had yet to be written for the New Testament. Now, Paul and the other New Testament writers did know that they were writing Scripture, but a full compilation of those books did not take place. In fact, it was about 20 20 plus year, 30 plus years after Paul when the last book was written, and about 100 years after Paul when the church understood and recognized and had a full compilation of all the New Testament. So when Paul is speaking of Scripture here, he's primarily referring to the Old Testament. In fact, that word Scripture, it's used 51 times in the New Testament. All but two of those times it refers to a specific Old Testament passage or to the Old Testament in general. And so again, Paul here, he's not excluding the writings of the apostles. But what he's saying here is that the, the, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, the scriptures, especially what God has written, what we've had our hands on and have studied and understood, especially that word is sufficient. That word is God breathed. Here we see in 2 Timothy 3, the first reason we should know and treasure the Old Testament is firstly because God speaks through it. God speaks through it. Again, it says there, all Scripture is inspired by God, or literally, God breathed. I like how the ESV translates it. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's exactly what he's saying there. It it emanates, it begins, its origin is in God, and He is the one that brings it forth. Hebrews 1.1 says, God spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. It's this idea of God breathed it out. God spoke it. Scripture is God speaking. The Scripture comes from Him. And notice, Paul says, all Scripture, every word of it, is breathed out by God. When you open your Bibles, who's speaking? God is speaking. When you read your Old Testament, your Old Testament, God is communicating. He has something to say and wants you to know. When you study the words of the prophets, when we we go through the the words of the twelve, we are studying what God has declared. God's spoken, and for that reason and that reason alone, we should want to know it. For if I love God, then I'll hang on His every word, won't I? If I want to love him more, I should want to know everything about him, everything that he has said. I need to know everything he has said. God didn't confine all of truth and all that he wants to reveal about himself in one-fourth of the book, but in the whole book. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Again, remember, when Jesus quoted that verse from Deuteronomy, there was no New Testament at all. The first book wouldn't even be written until 20 years later. All that God has spoken, all that He has said, all that He has communicated, all that He has told us is our very life, Jesus is saying. That's more important than eating. It's God's Word. Every word that He spoke, every word that He said, all that He has told us is our strength. It is our food. You know, and if we just give attention to only a few verses in the Bible or, or just focus our attention on a few books or, or just the New Testament, that's not enough. All Scripture is inspired by God. All of it is important. Brothers and sisters, we need to know the whole Word. We need to understand the whole book. We need all of Scripture, including the Twelve. For it is the whole Bible. 
all of it that gives us the best picture of who God is. As we go through these 12, we'll, we'll see how God interacts and deals with certain situations that you don't see anywhere in the New Testament. We'll see certain facets of God's character revealed that we won't see anywhere in such a way in the New Testament. The 12 is a wonderful place to study, as is all the Old Testament, as is all the Bible, because as a whole, we get a picture of who God is from it. We get a picture of what God desires and and who he is and what he has done. As we go through the 12, we're going to see the mercy and patience of God, probably in a way I think some of you may have never seen before. As we go through the 12, we'll see his great love and compassion on display. We'll see his righteous anger towards sin, his holiness and his justice. We'll see his faithfulness to his promises, his loyalty to his people. And the 12 are going to show us very clearly God's sovereign hand. They'll show us God's wisdom, God's knowledge. These these books, as is every book, ultimately is about the author, capital A. It's about God. Beloved, do you want to know God better? Do you want to know Him more? Do you want to see Him more clearly? Remember Jesus said in John 4 that uh, God the Father looks for those, seeks those who worship Him in spirit and truth. And as we dig deeper into His whole Word, the 12 included, we can more fully worship Him in spirit and in truth. We need to know the 12 because through the 12 God speaks. We need to know the Old Testament. Going back to 2 Timothy 3, we need to know and, value our Testament, know and value our Old Testament not only because God speaks through it, but also because He saves through it. Looking again at verse 15, where he tells Timothy, From childhood you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The only sacred writings that Timothy had access to, that he was taught and educated by his mother and grandmother. The only writings he had were the Old Testament. It's all he was given. And it was those, it was in that first part of our scriptures in which he was given the wisdom and the understanding by faith to understand when Jesus came, this is the Messiah. And he knew what Jesus had done and why. Because he had the foundation from the Old Testament. Paul's saying here that the Old Testament is the it's the concrete foundation upon which the gospel is being built. The gospel is built. Without the Old Testament, there are key parts of the gospel message that just wouldn't make sense or be hard to understand. I mean, why? Why a sacrifice? Why did Jesus need to shed his blood? We're called a temple. What does that mean? Or Jesus is the Messiah. What is that referencing to what? We can't understand these things and many other things about the gospel without having an understanding of the Old Testament, particularly the prophets. You remember the two men on the Emmaus Road that were walking along with with Jesus and they didn't realize it at the time. And they're telling him about the, the crucifixion and they thought Jesus was the Messiah. And now these ladies are talking about the fact that he's risen from the dead and they were confused. And so Luke says that Jesus did this beginning with Moses and with all the prophets He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, in all the Torah, in all the Nevi'im, in all the Ketuvim. It's in the prophets that we're going to learn more about Jesus and his good news. It's in the 12 that we will see the, the gravity of sin. We will see what genuine repentance looks like. We will see how God feels about sin and what is required to pay for it. We also see the, the great forgiveness and mercy of God. And we will see that Messiah, 
we will see and learn more about his return. All of these are major themes and components of the gospel, and they're all contained within the 12. In fact, there's one chapter in the 12 that, to me, is the, is the most amazing, wonderful illustration of the gospel that I, that I feel is in all the Bible, really. Uh, I get chills every time I go through it. It is just amazing, the picture that it gives. I'm not going to tell you where it is yet. You're just going to have to hang with me as we go through it. But there's so much... New Testament theology within the Twelve. Beloved, if you would know the Gospel better, if you would know Jesus better, you need to know the Old Testament better. That's why Paul said the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom which leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so you need to know the Old Testament not just because God speaks through it and not just because He saves through it, but also because He sanctifies through it. As Paul said in verse 16, all scriptures inspired by God and what? Read it with me. You should still be there, right? And profitable, right? It's profitable, beneficial, useful. For what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that, for the purpose of, in order that, the man of God, I find it interesting he used that phrase here for Timothy, the one that was used often for prophet in the Old Testament. In order that the man of God may be what? Adequate, adequate, this idea of capable, complete, proficient for every good work. You know, that that verse right there, I think, is the most comprehensive statement in all of Scripture on the life of the believer and the impact of the word of God that it has on the life of the believer. Scripture enables you knowing the word and living it out and enables you to live the life God wants you to live. The Bible empowers you to be godly. Both the Old and the New Testament show you how to live righteously and to honor God in your deeds. The Old Testament can sanctify you. God can use even what happened many years ago to a different people, have an impact in your own life. In fact, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 10. He was relating the, the Israelites and the, their rebellion in the desert. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. To Gentiles, he's speaking this. He says, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who stands, thinks he stands, take heed that he does not fall. Paul is saying here, the Old Testament accounts were written for our instruction. And then he, that instruction here came in the form of a warning because he's saying, don't ignore what these people did and what happened to them because if you don't pay attention, it could happen to you. If there's any place in the Bible that warns us of the dangers of walking away from the Lord, it is in the 12. Some of the passages there are, make you shake in your boots. But not only does the Old Testament give warning, it also gives hope. Romans 15, 4, Paul says, whatever was written in earlier times, again, what's he speaking of there? The Old Testament. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You know, we'll find hope as we study the twelve. Because again, in them, we're going to see God's faithfulness to His promises. We're going to see God's care and concern for His people. We're going to see His compassion, His patience, His willingness to forgive even the worst of sins. In the 12, we're also going to see God's plan for the future. A future that includes you and me. We're going to learn more about what is going to come. 
So, brothers and sisters, as you better understand the Old Testament, especially the last 12 books, you will be encouraged in your faith. I know as we go through them, you will be motivated to live righteously, righteously for our Lord, even in the midst of a great temptation and great trials. You'll be given hope as you see the plans of God unfold. In fact, the book of Zechariah, God tells the future for specifically the purpose to motivate and encourage them to live for Him. Twelve prophets are full of instruction that is beneficial for every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. For ultimately, they will show us Christ. Again, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself. And I'm looking forward to our journey through the twelve. I know these prophets are going to help us. I know that what the message they were given to speak to the people of their day will help us in our day. They'll help us to better fix our gaze upon Jesus. They're going to help us to better know our wonderful God and Savior. These 12 are going to help us to better live for Him and worship Him. Are you guys ready? All right. Starting this week, read these guys. Read through them and start with Obadiah. Um, We're going to look at him first next Sunday, Lord willing. I'll explain why when we get there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, all of it. Thank you for all those whom you led to speak your words, to have them written, so that we might have them today, have your words. Very words of God, we thank you for the encouragement that your word is sufficient, is all we need to know you and to live for you. I pray, God, you please, that you would use the 12, as we go through them together and study them and seek to understand them, that you would use them in our lives to, or draw us nearer to you, to better understand and know you, to see the beauty of all the facets of your being, and Lord, to understand and know how you feel about sin, and Lord, the, how, to, how to repent, and Lord, what forgiveness looks like. All these things, God, may you give us a clear picture of you, give us a clear picture of our Lord and Savior, and Lord, encourage us, challenge us, motivate us, Lord, to be his disciples all the more. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.